Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, my very special guest today is the best-selling and often controversial author, Brett Easton Ellis. He first shot to fame in the late 1980s with his debut novel, Less Than Zero, followed by American Psycho and its infamous villain, Patrick Batesman. His new novel is his first in 13 years. It's called The Shards and explores the secrets and desires of his teenage years in Los Angeles. It's been described as a precursor to Less Than Zero, which was first published in 1985. It's a mix of autobiography and fiction. And when I met with him, I began by asking Brett what it was like reliving those childhood memories. Well, I will actually tell you it's been 40 years since I wanted to write this book and since I first thought this book up, which was in my senior year in high school, when I was 17 and 18 years old. And a series of events happened that uh, were the catalyst that moved me from being an adolescent into adulthood. And I wanted to write about it. And I was working on a novel called Less Than Zero, which was my first novel. I've been working on that novel since I was about 16, 17. And then a series of things happened to me that made me want to write the shards. But I also didn't feel at that point that I quite had the chops or the experience or the, the talent to even attempt it. And Less Than Zero seemed to be like, what I like to call a, a vibe novel a hangout novel. It moves from scene to scene. It describes a world, but it really isn't dependent upon characterization, storyline, narrative. I could write that novel at 18 or 19. The Shards, when I imagined it, was just too big, too vast. And so over the years, I always thought I'd go back to The Shards, after I finished each book I published it through the 80s into the 90s, even into the early 2000s. And then I thought, it's never going to happen. And then sometime during lockdown, there was nothing to do. All my movie projects had dried up and I started uh, going online, which is something I rarely ever do anymore. And I started looking up old classmates because I was listening to music from that period, from 1981, Blondie, Duran Duran. And it made me want to look at my classmates. Some of the classmates that I hurt and I betrayed in my drama queen moment as, an, as, a, as a writer. So was Less Than Zero the, the catalyst for the hurting of your schoolmates or was it... Other things that you wrote at that Lesson time. Zero was the was the avoidance. Lesson Zero was just about the world. I finally, um, something, and this is how every novel happens. You feel something. And I think the reason The Shards was written when it was written was because I was finally the right age. I was 56, mm. 57. Those stirrings of nostalgia were very strong. 
much stronger then than they were 10 years previous, 15 years previous. And they really kind of became overwhelming. Can you describe for our listeners uh, what what you see the book as being about? Because actually, in a way, you know, it, it there is it's seeped in in some kind of nostalgia. It is about um, early eighties Los Angeles, nineteen eighty one to be precise. But it's also a kind of genre murder mystery, which you've you've uh, sort of lavished on us along with what would I suppose in another writer's hands be an attempt at a memoir. It's also, in many ways, a high school teen drama. Everything spreads out from there. It's about a group of friends at a high school in 1981. Some of them are the archetypes of that period. There's the gorgeous football player who's the quarterback, his beautiful homecoming homecoming queen, prom queen uh, girlfriend, who is very close friends with the narrator of the book. The narrator of the book is Brett Ellis. He's me. He's a burgeoning young writer. He's a closeted gay kid who is trying to fit into the the high school atmosphere. He he is dating one of the most popular popular girls in the school whose father is a famous producer. And he is part of the popular clique, not because he's popular, but because he has moved himself into this clique by, I don't know, perhaps being a bit of an actor. And then within this group, a new kid arrives, a kid named Robert Mallory, who is drop-dead gorgeous, who is so compelling, so charismatic, that Brett begins to realize that this group, this sort of facade that he has helped created to kind of get him through this senior year of high school is going to crack because of this boy. There's also a serial killer haunting LA called The Trawler. And Brett imagines a timeline between Robert Mallory, the new kid, and The Trawler murders. And he begins to see a connection between them. And there are some connections between them. And so the mystery of the novel is really about who is The Trawler, who is murdering these girls, and are one of these girls that is in Brett's core friend group going to be next. I mean, as I've said, this is a memoir in some ex- to, to some, some extent. extent. Yeah. It's a, a fictionalized memoir. So what you're writing about are things that actually happened. Yes. Uh, indulge me here. Um, yeah. What do you feel about the uh, the then insinuation that you should draw a cloak of invisibility over things that have actually happened because they appear unpalatable to people's sensibilities? I didn't write it for anybody. There's a dedication at the beginning of the shards. You know what it says? For no one. For no one. This is the disconnect about being a writer. When I'm writing a book, I am not in a contractual position with a publisher. I do not make a three book deal with a publisher. I don't even take advances from a publisher. I haven't published a novel in 13 years. I write because I want to write the damn book. I'm feeling something. Finally, this book arrived and it was a joy to to write. Writing for me is a hobby. It has never been a career. It is a hobby of mine. And I really enjoy it when it happens. And writing the shards for a year and a half was a sheer bliss. I loved going into that office every morning. I loved writing about these characters. I loved romanticizing to a degree uh, three or four of my friends that I was very close to, a couple that I feel I betrayed at some point. 
So all of that's joy. And then there's the rest of it. There's the reactions. There's the criticism. There's the one-star review. There's also the five-star review. I'm very divided, as you, everyone will know. <laughs> Divisive. But the interesting thing about you is that, that, you know, a lot of people, and certainly writers, mellow as they get older. And in some ways, we've been talking about the nostalgia w- with which this period in the 80s is cloaked to an extent, although there's also lots of sex and murder. But you don't seem to have mellowed. And in fact, you seem to be one of the few people actively challenging, though I would say it's becoming more of a chorus, the assumption that writers, I mean, you've done it, haven't you? You've written about what you know, but what you know is considered offensive and cancelable in in, in some areas. And I have been. I have been cancelled. I I think people tend to forget that in 1991, uh, 30 of my publishers dropped me, dropped me around the world through American Psycho. When the when this when when the controversy began, thirty. That's all of my publishers, but one. <laughs> so I was a free agent suddenly. I was. I, I guess I was one of the first of the canceled. I don't know. And certainly that essay collection, that essay white that I mm-hmm. published about four years ago, got me into a lot of trouble in Hollywood. You know, I lost some jobs because of that book because I was trying to understand the appeal of Trump. But even if you were doing that you were um, a traitor. You shouldn't be doing that. Why are you trying to understand this? So I've I've gone through this in my life. You know, you have to sleep at night. I can't fake it. I can't pretend to be something that I'm not. And also, I have to tell you that I I do think I have softened in many ways. I have become much more pragmatic about my life. And I am able to divide my real life from my writing life. They they don't completely overlap. And I have the same problems as everybody else. I have a boyfriend with addiction issues. I have aging parents that I'm concerned about. I have a a sister who is is having, has been in and out of hospitals. So, and and also the plumbing in my apartment needs to be replaced. And it's a a frigging Kafka-esque nightmare. So (laughs) if you wanna know the truth, I'm thinking about those four things on this book tour. But at 57, 58, real life begins to really become important. But do you think that that's the reason that you've become quite resilient and are prepared to challenge the, the, the sort of perceived norms of the moment? And, and do you think it's possible to be a, a writer only writing about what you know? I've never I... written about, I've always written about that, what I know. I've, uh, that's, just, that's just how I operate. I don't do gobs and gobs research and say well i think i'm going to write a novel about 18th century russia you know let's 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 go do that again we have to get back to that notion of feeling a book it's an emotional thing it isn't an it isn't an intellectual exercise so if i'm feeling something confusion pain whatever it might have been throughout my life unrequited love uh my problematic alcoholic father Whatever it might be, they start these emotions and these feelings start happening. And then a book emerges from those. So I am writing what I know. Someone asked me, why haven't you read a memoir? Why haven't you ever just flat out read a memoir? I think a lot of people would be interested in a memoir about a young writer who suddenly has a success and, and, and what that does to him. Uh, why don't you write that memoir? And I've told this person, I've written nine volumes of a memoir. They're all out there. They're all published. Every single book in some ways 
is a story about where I was at a certain point in my life. I always wanted to be a filmmaker. I grew up in Hollywood. I grew up in a school where a lot of people got into movies and TV. We grew up in the movie mad 70s, the golden age of cinema for some. And we all wanted to make movies. We grew up in LA. We all wanted, we saw every movie that came out. We all wanted to make movies. Many of us became screenwriters, a few of us directors, producers, et cetera. Everyone got into the business. And I thought I was going to become a filmmaker. And um, but yet I was also writing on the side. I was writing books. I I'd written two books previous to Less Than Zero. So that form, the novel, always, always, always interested me. And Less Than Zero, uh, you know, was published at, at, at 21. And it kind of derailed my entrance into Hollywood, which I thought I'd do after I graduated from university. And so when I was finally done with uh, the last book I wanted to write, which was a novel called Lunar Park from 2005, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to move back to L.A. A series of events had happened. My partner had died suddenly of seven years. Uh, his ghost was everywhere. It was time to leave New York. The party had ended. I went to L.A. Uh, I sold a show to HBO. Uh, I was paid a lot of money to put together a movie ad adaptation of my short story collection, The Informers. It all was looking good. And then I really kept, I, I really began to believe that the miniseries was the new novel. The TV show was the new novel. I had a bunch of scripts that everyone was interested in that never got made. I was very well paid for, for these 10 or 12 years lost in what I call the casino. Hollywood is the casino. You never win. You never win. And it's too bad because those, those 15 years or so are really the prime years for, uh, for writers, their 40s and 50s. That's really when they're at the height of their powers. And I miss out on those. Who knows what novel I could have come up with instead of 20,000 pages of scripts that never got made. And there came a time when I said, I can't do this anymore. I just simply can't do this anymore. I'm, I, 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 I have to go back to prose writing. And it kind of began with White, with that, with, with, that, um, with that essay that I published that caused so much consternation in 2019. But I noticed that, uh, oh, I was prose writing again. And I do think that there was something about putting that book together in 2018, when I was beginning to feel everything collapsing in Hollywood, that maybe it is time for another book. And maybe, maybe that's when the shards slowly began to announce itself. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When, when White came out, you know, you, you dared uh, to challenge the notion that liberal good, Trump bad, and it being that simple. In fact, you argue in that book that sort of liberal outrage and liberal overreaction is is stifling discourse. Um, and you've described liberals online as authoritarian language police. Do you, do you still uh, feel that? Well, that's a good question. I think it's worse than ever, by the way. And I think that as an artist, it, you it, to have to walk on eggshells and have and to be told by a publisher that you cannot write in the voice of a woman, no one's going to publish that right now, or you can't step into the shoes of, I don't know, whatever you want to write about, a handicapped uh, Latino, uh, a, a little Ethiopian girl, let's say, or a uh, lesbian woman in her mid-40s, that I will not be able to be published by a mainstream publisher if I want to do something like that because of identity politics, which are a truly dreadful thing for the arts I'm not talking about outside in the world or whatever. I'm talking about within the arts that an actor now cannot play a role because they are not that role. That's nuts, man. And, you know, all this progressivism that Hollywood is so proud of itself about and and how woke it thinks it is, is actually a kind of reverse racism and a reverse progressivism and a reverse kind of wokeness. It is a kind of authoritarian conservatism that goes back to the 50s in terms of how strict their ideology is and these these almost authoritarian, well, not almost, authoritarian beliefs in things that aren't human. People are messes. People are contradictions. People are filled of of hypocrisies and, and craziness and whatever. And you really cannot set up a list of rules to completely control that. I don't advocate violence and I don't advocate hate speech or anything like that, but we've got, my God, we've got to get, be realistic about the flaws that all of us have. I feel that there was a point and maybe there still is a point where there was punishment being doled out for offenses that didn't warrant them. And they came from the left, simply did. And I, and I really hated that because I always saw myself as a left-leaning liberal gay man. And I still did to a degree, but I realized the the political scene had gone to such a point where I, not changing my mind about anything, had been pushed all the way over to this side because I refused to align myself with some of the lunacy of the left. Do you think American Psycho would even be published 
(laughs) Well, I think if a woman wrote it, perhaps, but probably not. Well, that's a good question. If a woman wrote American Psycho, would a publisher publish it as a daring feminist statement about toxic masculinity? Perhaps. I think American Psycho is still, even if a woman wrote it, too extreme for the new mainstream publish, uh, publishers. Um, I, I, I do think maybe an independent, uh, and, and by the way, I mean, not to sound overly alarmist, there are a lot of independent publishers out there who do publish stuff that does not conform to the notions of the big three publishers. I mean, at least that we have in the United States. So, so maybe there's a chance. Haven't you made it your business with this book, at least in the UK, to publish with a publisher that actually relishes, embraces, makes makes it their business to publish those who've been cancelled or, uh, you know, had attempted cancellations? I have to tell you, honestly, honestly, as if I haven't been honest with you during these last 30 minutes. Which I well, you tell me you were a liar when you were a teenager. So I'm just well, wondering that was how much a, you've changed. Yes, I have changed a lot since then. Um, well, you know, I've been at Picador, my publisher, since I was 21. Sonny Maida, the great Sonny Maida, who was the head of Picador then, uh, published Less Than Zero in 21, when many other British publishers didn't want to touch the drug-addled journal of a teenager. Sonny saw literary merit in it and saw a future for me. So I was at Picador for my entire career for all of my books. Now, I don't really get into the business of things, but I hear that Picador had changed a lot. A lot of people had left that I knew, a lot of editors that I liked. In fact, I had dinner with one last night, and they say it has changed. And I also heard that they did not want to publish me or my new book. And they they gave us a very lowball offer to my agent uh, with, you know, my agent said, I don't think they want you. And I don't think you're the type of writer that they want to publish or have on their list. So, you know, let's take a risk. Let's go with Swift. Let's partner with Swift. And, you know, you're not going to take an advance. You're actually going to work together to sell the book. And then you will each take place, you know, you will each be profit participants in it from book one, instead of taking that fat advance that never pays out, you know. Swift do have a mission as well, don't they? I guess that there's a mission here. I don't like to get into the business side of it. I really leave that up to them. But, um, but and it is a risk. It is a risk. We don't know if this is fully going to work out. But, you know, if you're not in a position where you can't afford to take, where you can afford to take a risk, I think you should. So that's where we are. But I must say, and I will, I, I, I am sad that I am no longer with Picador. And though all of my books are in print there, everything that I've written is still in print, but it's too bad it worked out this way. And do you think it's got anything to do with the fact that you do share your opinions vociferously? Uh, I think I look, look, <laughs> I think being a middle-aged white man in this uh, current entertainment culture is um, not not as desirable as it once was. So, um, you know, you're just not, you're perhaps just not as popular as you once were. And so I think that might be the reason. I'm not sure. 